I have already told you we're going to the musical theater tonight, the American Musical Theater, and our guide is Sheldon Patinkin, uh, an eminent Chicago theater person who has just done a major book on the history of the American Musical Theater. But before he gets a chance to say a word, we establish the tone with this particular song, which you will certainly recognize. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain, and the waving wheat can sure smell sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. Oklahoma, every night my honey lamb and I sit alone and talk and watch a hawk making lazy circles in the sky. We know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. And when we say, Go! Hi, hi, oh, yeah. We're only saying, you're doing fine, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, And a necessary fade. I fear, Sheldon, that we'll have to fade on some of these tonight. There's so much music we've got lined up. You brought it all, and it's wonderful stuff. But uh, this takes us directly to the title of your forthcoming history of American musical theater. Right. It's called No Legs, No Jokes, No Chance. I wondered when I saw the material on the forthcoming book, what exactly was the meaning of that title? Well, actually, Northwestern University Press chose it. It was originally my subtitle, but the, we all agree it's a better title. When Oklahoma was trying out in New Haven before coming to New York, Michael Todd, uh, I believe it was, was heard saying in the intermission that the show had no legs, no jokes, no chance. Uh, actually, he didn't say legs. He said a word that you probably don't want me to mm -hmm. say on radio. Uh, and Winchell's secretary heard him say it, got it to Winchell, and Winchell published it in his column before the show came to New York. Predicting it would be a flop. Yeah, exactly, because <laughs> it didn't have any girls in tights or showing their legs. Uh, it didn't have, as a matter of fact, the women's chorus didn't even show up till halfway through the first act. Uh, it didn't have jokes. It had laughs that came out of situation and character rather than jokes. So therefore, as far as he was concerned, because it was a revolution in the musical. In fact, it did transform the very nature of the American musical. <laughs> From then on, musical plays rather than yeah. musical comedies. We stopped calling whatever. them comedies, didn't we? Pretty much soon after that, yeah. yeah. I miss musical comedies, or I did until the producers came. Then we had a musical comedy again. Now, the score of this... Uh, of Oklahoma is by Rogers and Hammerstein. It's still by Rogers and Hammerstein. This was the last, or at least it was a late uh, item on a long collaboration, wasn't it? No, it's their first show together. Oh, it was their first one. Oh, Rogers and Hart was right. together. Right. Rogers and Hart. What followed in the Rogers and Hammerstein? Uh, the next the show they did was Carousel. Ah. And then Allegro. And well, the the big five, as the Rogers and Hammerstein Foundation calls them, are Oklahoma, Carousel. South Pacific, The King and I, and The Sound of Music. It's time to put all of this in historical context. We're focusing on American musical theater from, I suppose, basically the 20s on 
through the 60s or 70s. Later on, we'll if do we a, get that far. If we get that far. Later on, we'll do another program on the totally modern American musical. But where does the form come from? Well, it's a, it, it grew like uh, out of a lot of different things. The actual Rodgers and Hammerstein Oklahoma form, which is a musical play, mm -hmm. where the script, which is called the book of a musical, comes first, and everything comes off of the needs of the script. Uh, goes back to Mozart's The Magic Flute, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, French and Viennese operetta. That's the form of operetta, which moved into American mm -hmm. operetta. Oscar Hammerstein wrote the books and lyrics for operettas for a long time before he started doing musicals. And he brought his understanding of that to Showboat first with Jerome Kern, and then that was in 1927, and then in 1943. So mostly it was about Austrian princes and Bohemian serving girls. Yeah, uh, uh, as opposed to Showboat, which was about life on the Mississippi yeah. and two failed marriages and a whole bunch of well, other Showboat, things. Was Showboat the first great in intrinsically modern American? Yes, history. which is why it has its own stamp, as does Oklahoma. Yeah. Because nothing much happened to the form on that level between 27 and 43. And Showboat dates to the 1920s. I think. 27. Who does the book? Who does the music? Oscar Hammerstein did the book and lyrics adapted from an Edna Ferber novel. Yeah. And Jerome Kern did the music. Jerome Kern. Right. Who was also a, a, a quote, serious composer under another name. Mm. Did you know that? No. It's true. I didn't know that. I'll check it out on the Google for you shortly. I believe but, you. <laughs> but let's go to Showboat. Let's say something about it. Okay, Showboat has five stories. Mm -hmm. It's it, it had a cast of well over a hundred, with a full black singing chorus and dancing chorus, a full white singing chorus and dancing chorus, and a bunch of principals. It tells about life on the Mississippi on a showboat, and it travels from the no late 1800s to the time of the show itself, 1927. And Kern wrote music that matched the period and occasionally brought in an old song. So that, for instance, Magnolia, who is the heroine, when she becomes a star, becomes a star singing a very old song called After the Ball, mm -hmm. which was a real one. Um, and the connecting material is a song called Old Man River, which moves the time along from decade to decade, mm -hmm. sometimes from year to year. And it's sung by <clears throat> a character named Joe who works on the showboat. And although he didn't create the role in the original production because he was in something else, he did create it in London and played the role in the first movie version of it, and that's Paul Robeson. And I think we have some of him singing Old Man River. Let's right? hear it right now. Old Man River, sung by Paul Robeson. There's an old man called Mississippi, that's the old man that I'd like to be. What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't free? Old Man River, that old man river, he must know something, but don't say on rolling along. He don't 
so unusual for 1927 to actually take seriously mm. the life of the black people. Yeah. For um, Beyond Minstrel Shows at last. Oh, yeah. Though in the, on the showboat, they're doing a minstrel show. Yes, they? they are. Yeah. Actually, minstrel show was part of what eventually created the form of the yeah. musical. Minstrel shows, vaudeville, burlesque, operetta. It was a hodgepodge of a whole different bunch of things. There's an, one of the main subplots in showboat is about a woman passing as white mm -hmm. who's actually black, married to a white man, and playing on the showboat. Her name is Julie Laverne. And it was illegal for a black and a white to be married where they were playing the show in the South. Uh, at any rate, they leave. They end up in Chicago. He leaves her. She turns into an alcoholic and sings one of the great torch songs of all time. He's just my bill. Yeah. And this is the original Helen Morgan singing it. I used to dream that I would discover the perfect lover. Someday I knew I'd recognize him if ever he came round my way. I always used to fancy that he'd be one of the godlike kind of men with a giant brain and a noble head like the hero's bones in the books I've read. But along came Bill, who's not the type at all. You meet him and never noticed him. His form and face, his manly grace, is not the kind that you would find in all at you. Oh, I can't explain. It's surely not his brain that makes me Because he's wonderful, because he's done my 
play golf or tennis or polo or sing a solo or roll. He isn't half as handsome as dozen of men that I know. He isn't tall or straight or slim, and he dresses far worse than Ted or Jim. Oh, I can't explain why he should be just a one-one man in the world for me. He's up to my bill, an ordinary man. He hasn't got a thing that I can brag about. And we are tonight doing an overview, a history, brief as it necessarily must be, of the American musical theater, more or less in the modern era, from the 1920s on into the 60s or thereabouts. Uh, we'll do another program a few months from now, again with Sheldon Patinkin, in which we'll deal with musicals uh, in uh, the following decades. But right now comes a very, very difficult moment. We go to commercials, and I just pray that the first commercial doesn't have a discordant and rather cheap tune behind it. Uh, we shall <laughs> discover almost instantly. And we'll be back in three minutes. And our very special guest of the evening is Sheldon Patinkin, chairman of the theater department at Columbia College in Chicago, one of the original founders of Second City, and for that matter, a participant in the earlier groups that generated Second City. Oh, yeah. Compass Players was one of them? Actually. During Compass Players, I was being a good boy and get, working on my master's uh -huh. at the University of Chicago. But before that was Playwrights Theater Club. So I skipped that middle Compass period. I was an audience, but, and then we opened Second City in 59. And you've been busy over all these years, essentially as a director at Second City and in many other yeah. venues around the And country. I'm still the artistic consultant to the Second City. Mm -hmm. I'll never direct there again if I can at all avoid it. Uh, it's a difficult job, and I'm the artistic consultant at Steppenwolf Theater as well, where I've directed quite a few plays, and I teach there in the summertime. And, of course, you run the theater department at Columbia College, which is a very ambitious undertaking, I know. Well, we have 700 majors in How the department. That? It's just enormous. <laughs> Our next show, actually, is You're in Town. Uh, we that do title puts me off just a bit. <laughs> it's... There, there's a whole thing at the beginning of the show about what a terrible title it is, yes. as a matter of fact. It's a very funny show, very nasty, funny show. Mm -hmm. um, and we just, we do at least one fully staged musical every year. We have a very large musical theater program, as a matter of fact. Now, back to American musical theater. What can be said, just as if while standing on one leg, 
uh, very briefly because we want to get back to the music. But what can be said about the uh, the precursors of the kind of musical we're talking about? Well, they were not book heavy. They were mostly boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl, mm -hmm. simple minded stories that could stop at any time for an unrelated song, dance, or comedy routine, depending on who the stars were and what they wanted to do. There's one very famous one, a guy named Ukulele Ike. Cliff Edwards, I remember. Right, who is uh, Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio. Mm, exactly. He had a contract that said that, show started at 8.30 in those days, that regardless of what was going on, at somewhere around 10.15, he had to have a ukulele solo, uh -huh. no matter what happened. That was pretty much the way musicals were put together. Jerome Kern tried to keep them structured. That was important to him. And Oscar Hammerstein. And when they got together with Showboat, they got a really structured one. I have a sense that if you go to the early, is this, is this just a, a fanciful notion, quite incorrect, or is there something to it? But if you go to the earliest there and Rogers movies, that they have the sort of structure that those Boy Meets Girl, Boy Loses Girl musicals must have had. Absolutely, but they were better structured than the And they were better story. performed, yeah. yeah. Well, they were also better written. Yeah. Uh, the books were almost irrelevant and ne didn't necessarily come first. They'd get an idea, they'd get some music together, and then get a plot around it. But George M. Cohan was really the first major writer of musicals. Mm -hmm. 1907, I think it was, with Little Johnny Jones, which really is a musical. He called it a musical play. A lot of the music had nothing much to do with the development of the story, but some of it did. The thing about Oklahoma that made it the most complete one is that it incorporated within it how dance helped to tell story as well as songs and, yeah. and, and laughs. Now, in the 1930s, a true American genius who died far too young is at the peak of his powers, I suppose, George Gershwin. He was at the peak of his powers throughout the whole 20s and 30s. Well, I guess he was. Yeah. But he died with 38 or 39. At the age yeah. of 38. But uh, there was a book by DuBose Hayward, isn't that right? Yeah. Titled Porgy. Right. About uh, black people, um, uh, fishermen and others down in Charleston. Yeah, Catfish Row in Charleston. Catfish Row in Charleston, Charleston South, South Carolina. Carolina. And it's from that book that he, uh, Gershwin, and I guess with Hayward working on on the and Ira Gershwin and Ira Gershwin, his brother, they put together. Right. Well, actually, Hayward and his sister did a play version of it first, ah. and then they allowed Gershwin to do a musical, uh, an but opera, really. It. When does it premiere? In 1936. 35. 35. And it really is the first folk opera in America. Uh, it was a flop on Broadway. A oh, flop is defined as something that doesn't get its investment back. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, in its first production, but it is, of course, just one of the great works written for the Broadway stage, although it is now done almost exclusively in opera houses. And we do have the original Porgy and Bess, Todd Duncan and Ann Brown, singing their duet, I Loves You, Porgy, if you want to play that. Let's hear it right now. I'm lonesome there all by myself. It's hot in there. Let me sit here with you in the cool. Been very sick, but now I got you back there. How long I've been sick? Oh, for a week now. You come back from Kitty War with I like Fireball, and Mariah get you into bed, and you ain't know me. What's the matter, Ben? I guess I ain't no nothing with the fever. 
I Loves You, Porgy, from Porgy and Best, sung by Todd Duncan and Anne Brown. Todd Duncan went on to have a, an extended career. I think he showed up in, in film rather often. He did some films. He played the lead in the Kurt Vile musical Lost in the Stars uh -huh. in the 50s. No, in the, in the That's the one about 40s. South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as you can hear from this, you know, it's a combination of opera, musical comedy, black music, I mean, summertime is from this. It ain't necessarily so right. is from uh -huh. this. There's a boat leaving soon for New York. I got plenty of nothing. I mean, it's just a, an oh, incredible. It's, it's score. a great score. Yeah, I love. I, I think love the lyric show. did a full production of it just a few years ago. Yes, I believe they yeah. did. Uh, we are due for an update on the news, and for that too, the newsroom and Roger Batish, and directly back to Sheldon Patinkin. I guess we are really drawing from your still not yet quite available book. Northwestern University Press told me to say that it's going to come out sometime in early summer. 
And when it does, we'll have to do another program. What's the deal? Well, we'll bring <laughs> our history of the American Musical Theater up to date. We can bring it all the way up to the producers and Wicked. Absolutely. Now, um, well, we're in your hands. Just where do we go now? Well, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I was thinking that we haven't done anything of Irving Berlin's yet. So he wrote a lot of reviews. Review was fancy vaudeville, mm -hmm. but with, without the only one time per act that vaudeville was. Instead, what it did was what burlesque did. Yeah. It brought back people and had them work together as well as in their own separate acts. When I was a kid in New York, probably still in high school, there was a set of reviews called New Faces. Uh -huh. uh, and once we went downtown, or rather over to Manhattan from Brooklyn, to see New Faces of whatever year that was. It might have been New Faces of 1958. Six. 1956 would have been the first one. No, the, no, no, no. Is this the one that had Paul Lind and Eartha Kitt? And Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt. That was 1956. That I yeah. It came here with the whole cast. Yeah. That was the it's first fabulous Eartha Kitt. Yeah. That was the first review I had ever seen. Oh, really? And was I the first one I had ever seen. Awesome. I just completely yeah. fell in love with the form. In a way, the review became a kind of musical. It's mm -hmm. called a concept musical. Yeah. Which is review format but with continuing characters because it's about an idea rather than telling a narrative story. The first really important one was Company, Stephen Sondheim's mm -hmm. in 1970, but Hair is a concept musical even before that. If you want, if you think about it, Jesus Christ Superstar is a concept musical because if you don't know the story, you're not going to follow mm -hmm. a word of what's going on. Fortunately, everybody knows the story. Well, it has a good book. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the Gospel according to Matthew or <laughs> yeah, Mark. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes sense that way. But you have to know the story to follow it. Yeah. Um, I love reviews. Well, Second City's a review. Of course. It's an intimate review as opposed to a big Broadway but it's not a musical review. review. No, although there are usually three or four musical numbers yeah. in it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know whether you know it or not, but one of the sketches in that New Faces that you remember mm -hmm. was a parody of Death of a Salesman written by Mel Brooks. Really? In the, in the early Mel Brooks days. I think I do remember that. Paul Lind was a, a pickpocket rather than a salesman. <laughs> now back to our playlist, so to speak. Coming up next is Walter Houston doing September song from Knickerbocker Holiday. It's the only time he ever sang. If you, and he started the concept of speak singing songs. Sprachstimme, they call them. Yeah. In German. In Ger well, it was, it, was, it was prevalent in Germany. And this yeah. was written by a German emigre, Kurt Weill. Kurt Weill, yeah. Who fled the Nazis in the early 30s, first went to Paris, and then eventually came here. This was his second Broadway musical. It's about Peter Stuyvesant and old New York. Peter Stuyvesant and Walter Houston is actually the villain. Mm -hmm. But he has the great song from the show. It's September song. And he's singing it to the young woman who's about to marry him, is that right? Who he's, he's forcing to marry. He's him. forcing her to marry him. Right. And the, the lyrics are by Maxwell Anderson.
When I was a young man courting the girls, I played me a waiting game. If a maid refused me with tossing curls, I'd let the old earth take a couple of whirls while I plied her with tears in place of pearls. And as time came around, she came my way. As time came around, she came. But it's a long, long while from May to December and the days grow short when you reach September and the autumn weather turns the leaves to flame and I haven't got time for the waiting game and the days turn to gold as they grow few September November and these few golden days I'd share with you these golden days I'd share with you and the wine dwindles down to a precious blue September, November. And these few vintage years I'd share with you. These vintage years I'd share with you. those golden years. I have no idea why they're called the golden years, but that's beside <laughs> the point. Um, um, quiz question for you, yeah. to which you will certainly know the answer. That is Sprachstimme, half speaking, yeah. the thing. And it's a, a German tradition, but it's used certainly elsewhere. Uh, what um, great English actor Rex Harrison and My Fair Lady. <laughs> you anticipate even before I finish the question. I was about to say it myself, so yeah. therefore, oh yeah, it, it goes straight through to, to what he did in My Fair Lady mm -hmm. and Richard Burton in Camelot. Yes. Same mm -hmm. thing. And Richard Harris in the movie version of yeah. Camelot, too, as a matter of fact. Uh, we pause for some commercials. And again, I pray that there is no discordant music uh, on the first run, at least. Here we go. And we return to Sheldon Patinkin. Uh, you and I were just talking about something which we might share just briefly with our listeners before we go back to the playlist, which is a wonderful playlist. And I thank you for bringing in all the music tonight. But we were talking about the interaction between the Broadway musical and the Hollywood musical. Well, there have been a lot of very faithful and good movies made of Broadway musicals, like My Fair Lady, which mm -hmm. we were just talking about before, and West Side Story. They're not as complete, they can't be. But then the other way around, for instance, my favorite movie musical is Singing in the Rain. Which we were just talking about. Yeah, I, I, it's, just, it's a great movie musical written by Comden and Green. Mm -hmm from a, a, a bunch of old songs that had been written earlier for Hollywood movies. It was made into a stage musical afterward. It just doesn't work as well. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was made into a stage musical afterwards. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work as well. Uh, 
I think Fosse's version of Cabaret was probably the smart way to do it. He cut all of the musical songs and just did the Cabaret songs so that they were songs that were being presented to an audience at the time. Um, we mentioned earlier uh, the Astaire Rogers uh, films. Uh, they were all just done for the movies. They? Well, the, their first one was The Gay Divorce. Oh, and that's off? Which... That's from a Broadway show. Then. Yeah, but uh, barely. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, as a matter of fact, I think there's only one Cole Porter song left in the sh in the movie, Night and Day, is the only one. And also they changed the title from The Gay Divorce to The Gay Divorcee. Why did they do that? Because Hollywood didn't think that a divorce could be gay, although a yeah. divorcee could be. And that's gay in the old sense of the word, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, Although I'm sure that Cole Porter knew the difference. I would think he did, <laughs> since he was gay in the news. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, Heat Wave from As Thousands Cheer, performed by Ethel Waters. Now, that's a show that I don't know anything it, about. It's a review from 1933. Most of the great black performers, when they did Broadway, did reviews. Because in reviews, they could be themselves, they could be a variety of mm. characters, they could do things. Whereas when they were put into musicals, other than Showboat, they were usually the mammy, they were usually the servant or the prostitute or the whatever it's it was. the Hattie McDaniel problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas Ethel Waters mostly did reviews. And for mm. instance, she did this great sexy number mm -hmm. from Irving Berlin's S. Thousands Cheer called Heat Wave. That review had as its glue the, the, the daily newspaper. And this was the weather report. And here we have, shall we play it? Absolutely. It's so hot, a coat of tan will 
gets a bribe. It's so hot, a chicken laid an egg on the street, and it's fried. We're having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. The temperature's rising, it isn't surprising. She certainly can, can, can. Started the heat wave by letting her and in such a way that the customers say that she certainly can, can, can. Cheap anatomy made that mercury jump to 93. Yeah, man, we're having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. The way that she moves, that thermometer proves that she certainly can, can, can. Vigorous, yeah, good stuff. Uh, she would never have been given a song like that to sing in a in a Broadway mm -hmm. musical, but in a review, yes. But you remember a film, and does it come from a Broadway play? I think it does, called Cabin in the Sky. Mm-hmm. Was that, that was originally a Broadway musical? Yes. By she's in that. She's in the film. Yeah, together with Eddie Anderson, so-called Rochester, Rochester Anderson, Rochester right. Anderson. <laughs> and Lena Horne's in it too. Yeah. She's she's the vamp who almost. But that's a so-called all-black musical. Right. There was another one called Stormy Weather, mm -hmm. another all-black musical that was really just an excuse to get a whole bunch of really great black performers on screen, including a sensational dance by the Nicholas Brothers. Uh, I remember them. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Ethel Waters eventually turned into a dramatic actress. Oh yes. Hard as Remember the wedding? Sure. And uh, several others. And she was really good. Really good. There's so much that we're not playing. <laughs> you, we had a hell of a time before we started tonight. We generated a playlist of about 28, and we had a level of And that wasn't enough. That wasn't <laughs> enough either. So what have we given up that uh, that would be, in, would be included if we were doing a good five-hour program? Well, for instance, I don't think we have a single Cole Porter song on this list. Oh, really? Um, and he wrote, well, Night and Day, and... Wait a minute. we got Pal Jelly coming up, isn't that it? No, that's Rogers and Hart. That's Rogers and Hart still, yeah. That's our first Rogers and Hart song, as yeah. a matter of fact. Uh, Rogers, of course, is also Rogers and Hammerstein, yeah. but that's later. Uh, and nothing of Bert Lahr, one of my favorite comics, uh, who recorded a few of the songs. He also basically did reviews, although he did a couple of musicals mm -hmm. as well in the 30s. And he's the Cowardly Lion in... Yes. Of the film version of, of Wizard of Oz. And Wizard of Oz. Speaking of which, nothing of Ray Bolger, who was the uh -huh. Scarecrow, and who did Where's Charlie, Once in Love from with Amy. From Charlie's Aunt. Yeah. Yeah. And sang Once in Love with Amy in that, and did a soft shoe and made the audience sing along. And Jack Haley, who was the Tin Man, was also in a lot of Broadway musicals. Uh, we don't have any of that stuff. We don't have any of Ethel Merman, as I recall who was a major star that Cole Porter and Irving Berlin wrote whole musicals around in the 30s. But the one we're coming to now, Pal Joey, has a book which really is very unfunny. It's not a musical comedy. It really is serious drama. And it was, it was a major step toward Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm -hmm. This is Rodgers and Hart. It was 1940. Oklahoma was 43. Hart was still capable of writing as long as you kept him in a prison, practically speaking. He was very difficult to get to write. With with Hart, Rogers wrote the music first and then forced Wright, 
part to write the lyrics. With Hammerstein, Hammerstein wrote the lyrics first and then the music. I want to work this one in quickly because we'll have to go to some commercials uh, shortly. But So give us a, a half-minute setup on that. All right, this is an older, very wealthy woman who has taken this sleazeball Joey under her wing and sings this song about how she feels about him. It's called Bewitched. Like a daisy, I away with no promo seltzer handy. I don't even shake. Men are not a new sensation. I've done pretty well, I think. But this half pint imitation put me on the blink. I'm wild again. Be And with that, we uh, pause to refresh ourselves with some interesting news about available services and commodities. And then we shall return uh, after an intervening newscast to uh, Sheldon Patinkin in our, as we continue our tour of great American musicals. And we return to Sheldon Patinkin, who is guiding us through the history of the American musical. It's been yeah. wonderful music till now and great stories as well. 
we, we just played Bewitched before this last break. Mm. That song couldn't be played on the air when yeah. it first came out. You were telling me. Because of lines like, worship the trousers that cling to him, and thank God I can be oversexed again. Uh, Pretty mild by oh, contemporary yeah, standards. By today's standards, it's yeah. nothing. But, oh, was it shocking. But the main thing about Pal Joey, in terms of the history of the development of the musical, is that it dealt with unpleasant characters. Mm -hmm. It did not have a happy ending. The movie version with Frank Sinatra, he goes off at the end with Kim Novak, but that was not true. That's pretty happy. Oh, yeah. Who, who can blame him? Uh, although he lost Rita Hayworth in the process. But, you know, he had it pretty good in that movie. Uh, <clears throat> that was sung, by the way, by Vivian Siegel, who did the role or, uh, originally. I forgot to say she was married, uh, but took Joey under her wing anyway. Thank God she could be oversexed again. Also, it had a dream ballet, as did a couple of the other Rodgers and Hart musicals from the 30s that were choreographed by George Balanchine before he started his mm. ballet company. He did a lot of Broadway musicals before that. And the pal Joey Roll in the original Broadway production, he's not a singer as he is in the film. He's a dancer, and the right. dancer was? Gene Kelly. No, no, Made him a star. He went to Hollywood, never came back to Broadway except mm -hmm. to direct something, some failed musical. I can't remember what it was. Um, and then that was 1940, 1943. By then, Hart was no longer capable of writing at all. He was a, a severe alcoholic. He was very difficult to pin down to write at all. There was one very famous episode when he was in the hospital, and in order to get him to write lyrics to some songs, Rogers took over the next room in the hospital, hmm. had a piano brought in, and they worked that way. Uh, and he turned down, uh, Hart turned down writing Oklahoma with Rogers. He didn't feel he was right for it. He wasn't in any good shape anyway. And it was at that point that Hammerstein, who really wanted to do the show, said, well, then I'll do it with you. And that formed that relationship. Hart was very unhappy about that. He felt that Rogers would have deserted him. So Rogers agreed to do a rewrite of the Connecticut Yankee which was a musical that they had written together in the 20s. Mm -hmm. And it was very successful. And that was the last thing that Hart did before he died. The, um, the next one we have in line is Carousel. Now that's... Second Rodgers and Hammerstein. That's Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yeah, that's their yeah. second one, 1945. And it's from a, um, originally a Hungarian story. Right, called, a play called Lilium. Lilium by... Molnar. Ferenc Molnar. Right. Or as they say in Budapest, Molnar Ferenc. Oh, do they? Yeah, you always say the, I, I the given that. name first, or like, last, rather. That's yeah. like the Asians, yeah. then, or the I Chinese, so. at least, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I didn't know that. It's also, well, Stephen Sondheim put it best. Oklahoma is about whether Lori will go to the box social with Judd or with Curly, mm -hmm. uh, and whether Ado Annie will end mm -hmm. up with Will Parker or not, as opposed to Carousel, their next musical, which is about life and death. And the villain dies at the end of Oklahoma. That was already unheard of. But the hero dies halfway through the second act of Carousel. He kills himself when he's caught in a robbery and then goes to heaven and is allowed to come back for one day to see if he can make up for the fact that he was a white wife beater and unfaithful mm. and just in general was not a great person. The hero of the show, Billy Bigelow, is not a great person. He's He's in a lot of ways, a worse person than Joey, although he's not sleazy. And very important, it became a musical tragedy, in fact. Yeah. 
and You'll Never Walk Alone was sung to his wife as she was crying over his dead body, mm. as opposed to at a high school graduation. And the course. song we're about to hear, it's a duet, If I Loved You. What's the, how is that set? This is when Julie and Billy Bigelow first meet uh-huh. and fall in love at first sight. And the thing about Julie, which is also true of almost every woman in an Oscar Hammerstein thing, is they love their man no matter what. Can't help loving that man oh. is, is the, the showboat version of it. And what's the use of wondering is Julie's version of the same thing. There's no point in wondering whether he's good or he's bad. He's my man and I love him. And that's all there is to it. Did Oscar have such a love in his life or is that rather wishful on his part? I believe he did. I really do believe mm-hmm. he did. Certainly... He and his wife were together for his entire life. He died in 1960. That's very nice. Oh, yeah. And she was a, a big... I, uh, one of her, her famous story about her, Dorothy Hammerstein, is she was in a room with someone, and they were talking about Old Man River, and uh, the woman said to someone else, it was written by Jerome Kern, and Dorothy Hammerstein said, no. Jerome Kern wrote, da, 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 da. My husband wrote Old Man River, that Old Man River. Well, as I was saying to you, uh, while we were listening to one of these just recently, um, as you listen closely uh, on a program like this, one is struck, I am struck, certainly, by how absolutely right the lyrics are. Uh, I, I, the, le mot juste, I said. Absolutely. Every I mean, word is just where it should be, and, but it's all very inventive, without being excessive. And that's why... For many years, it was hard to make a rock musical work mm-hmm. because in rock songs, the lyrics are not as important as the beat. Who can hear them anyway? Exactly. But now now it's, rock is being figured out to make musicals mm-hmm. as well. I, I don't necessarily like many of them, but nonetheless, at least we're starting to get some younger people back into the audiences and uh, musicals. We lost them for a long time. Now, we go to this great duet, If I Loved You. The performers are Jan Clayton and John Raitt. The originals. The originals. Here they are.
anyway, you don't love me. That's what you said, wasn't it? Yes. You're a funny kid. Don't remember ever meeting a girl like you. Say, are you trying to get me to marry you? No. Well, then what's putting it into my head? I wonder what it'd be like. What? Nothing. I know what it'd be like. It'd be awful. I can just see myself. Kind of scrawny and pale, picking at my food, and lovesick like any other guy. I'd throw away my sweater and dress up like a dude in a dicky and a collar and a tie. If I love you. And somehow I can see just exactly. Beautifully performed. Oh yeah, he was yeah. really good. The the line between Rodgers and Hammerstein's musical plays and operetta is very very thin. I mean, as you said while we were listening to it, that could be from an operetta. Yeah. Well, um, what are some of the great operettas that were performed on the American stage in their time? American operettas or European ones? Well, both. Victor Hugo, of course, was. A transplanted European who worked in America and wrote operettas. Victor Victor Herbert. Victor Herbert. Did I say Hugo? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Victor he Herbert. he wrote the operetta that became the form, Naughty Marietta. Uh huh. Yeah. With zing zing zzz zing 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 sure. boomay in it. But you had uh, a number of middle Europish guys as well. Rudolf Frimmel, whoever he was. Right. Well, and, well Frimmel and Romberg. Rom Sigmund Romberg. Right. Yeah. Uh, Desert Song, Rosemary, mm -hmm. When I'm Calling You, <laughs> um, Student Prince. Yeah. But also very influential in America at the turn of the century was The Merry Widow, which was a Viennese opera. Uh -huh. It brought close ballroom dancing mm -hmm. into America, and it was a major influence. So were Gilbert and Sullivan, by the way. Yes. 
they must be very important. Oh, yeah, they, they are the model of yeah. the musical comedy, where everything comes off of Gilbert's books uh, and his lyrics. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said before, lyrics help to define character. They help to define atmosphere. They are not poetry. They are lyrics, and they're really important. So far, everything we've heard has been essentially in the romantic vein, mm -hmm. whether happy or sad, but it's all about love. Uh, we've got something coming up now from um, Annie Get Your Gun, which has a comic turn. Yes, this is about love the other way. Yeah. This is Annie Oakley and Frank Butler in competition with each other. And, and this is Ethel Merman and Ray Middleton. Yeah. Ethel Merman has a piercing voice. I, I like to tell my students, think it's a trumpet and you'll like it better. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. And now, little lady, if you'll kindly step up to the parapet, I'll give you a lesson in marksmanship. You couldn't give me a lesson in long-distance spitting. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I can shoot a partridge with a single partridge. I can get a sparrow with a bow and arrow. I can live on bread and cheese. And only on that? Yes. So can a rat. Any note you can reach, I can go higher. I can sing anything higher than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. 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 Anything you can buy, I can buy cheaper. I can buy anything cheaper than you. 50 cents? 40 cents. 30 cents? 20 cents. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can say, I can say softer. I can say anything softer than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I can drink my liquor faster than a flicker. I can do it quicker and get even sicker. I can open any safe. Without being caught? Sure. That's what I thought, you crook. Any note you can hold, I can hold longer. I can hold any note longer than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, no, I can. In my shoe? In your hat. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can say, I can say faster. I can say anything faster than you. I can jump a hurdle. I can wear a girdle. I can knit a sweater. I can fill it better. I can do most anything. Can you bake a pie? No. Neither can I. Anything you can sing, I can sing sweeter. I can sing anything sweeter than you. No, you can. Yes, I can. No, you can. Oh, yes, I can. No, you can. I can. No, you can. Yes, I can. No, you can't, can't, can't. Yes, I can, can, can. Yay! Oh, you can. 
Oh, boy. <laughs> you have directed for many, many years musical theater and other kinds of theater, oh, and yeah. of course, comedy and so on. Uh, where do such great performers come from? They are there. They're not, they're, they're not made. You want my they, answer? Yeah. Heaven. <laughs> from heaven. And you could spot them when, even when they're youngsters and they're not well-known, can't you? Well, that's what we do at Second City. Yeah. We've been doing it since 1959. Actually, Compass before that. Actually, Playwrights before that. Playwrights was at Asner. Mm -hmm. Mike Nichols and Elaine made before they did Compass. Byrne and Joyce Piven, Barbara Harris, Paul Sills, of course, who was our artistic director. I don't know. Uh, well, we just heard such a consummate, perfect performance. Of course, it was shaped, and obviously others contributed to the concept of it all. But these are great performers. Oh, without that, there's no point. Yeah. And the thing about Merman, I mean, that voice is sort of stunning, <laughs> not necessarily in the most positive yeah. sense of that word. But, boy, this was before amplification in, in, in Broadway musicals, and you could hear her to the back row of the back balcony without yeah. any trouble at all. Wonderful stuff. Uh, we are due for a quick round of messages. Here they are. And some listeners are wondering, when is he going to go to the phones? Well, I see some phones are ringing, so we'll begin to answer them. 5917200. But on one of these musical nights where there's so much good stuff to play, inevitably we uh, won't be doing much with telephone calls, but we'll work in one or two tonight Fine. before we finish. Whatever and you so want. if you want to join us, 5917200 is the number. But right now, more music. And ah, we come now to a great metropolitan opera star who condescended, or probably was much very thrilled by, uh, shifting from the Met to the Broadway musical stage. It's your Pinter in South Pacific, co-starring with Mary Martin. Mary Martin only agreed to do the role if she didn't have to do any duets with an opera singer. Mm -hmm. So there are no duets between Nellie Forbush and Emile de Beck. But his big first act song, which is one of the most beautiful romantic ballads ever written, Rodgers and Hammerstein, is Some Enchanted Evening. You want to hear it? And this guy was one of the great, uh, virtually perfect um, operatic bosses. Oh, yeah. He was he was the ultimate Don Giovanni, yeah. Mephistopheles and Faust. I told you as a kid, I saw him in Don Giovanni at the Met. So lucky. My father was a great um, opera fan, and he introduced me to opera with that particular matinee performance on a Saturday afternoon. It's a great way to start. It is indeed. Here he is, Ezio Pinza, Some Enchanted Evening. Laughing, you may hear her laughing, a close and 
Speaking of uh, God's gifts, <laughs> that voice, though it's much trained, oh, yeah. but originally there's something about the organization of his pharynx, his larynx, and his chest, and his lungs, which produces a wonderfully resonant, fine basso voice. I, you're born with it. You have to uh, be. Yeah. Yeah. You train it, but you're born with it. I, it's like there are people who say anybody can be an actor. Anyone can act, but not everyone, everyone can be good at it. Uh, and certainly that's true with singing. Everybody loves to sing in the shower or whatever mm -hmm. it is, but boy, to, to have that God-given sound in your voice, I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, but that's why you're a director, I guess. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I can tell them what to do. Yeah. Um, we, um, we'll be working in a call or two, 591-7200. If you don't mind waiting a bit, you can give us a ring right now. And uh, we're going on, we're going to one of my favorite uh, Broadway musicals. Uh, this one also, I think I saw in its original performance, Guys and Dolls. You saw it in 1950. Uh, was it 50? I guess I saw it on a revival then. But in New York, some, in the- It could have been 50. Could have been 50. Because uh, it ran for a long time. Yeah. It opened in 1950. It ran uh -huh. for, I don't know, four years or something like that. I was very young, I know that, uh, and I loved a, a mere youth. A mere youth, <laughs> and I loved it. And we're going to hear uh, probably two numbers from Guys and Dolls after we pause for an update on the news. Uh, and for that, to the newsroom. And our very special guest is Sheldon Patinkin, who is our guide to the history of the American musical. I think with the next one, Guys and Dolls, we're coming to another transition or another uh, break. Uh, and some something new about the way the whole thing is put together. Am I right? Well, the most unusual thing about Guys and Dolls is it tells two stories. Most most musicals, up until then, there was a main plot which was romantic yeah. and a subplot which was comic, uh, or sometimes the other way around. But 
I don't think it's possible to say which is the main plot and which is the subplot of Guys and Dolls. The two plots are absolutely equally important. Guy Masterson and the uh, Salvation Army Lassie. Sarah. And Nathan Detroit and Miss Adelaide. Right. And uh, it is an incredibly literate, funny script, a great score. It had, I don't know, something like six or seven hit songs. Wonderful music. Frank Lesser. Wonderful music. Frank Lesser, yeah, wonderful. And the very opening is one of my favorite moments in American musical theater. The Fugue for Tin Horn? The Fugue for Well, actually, it opens with a ballet. Oh, does it? It opens with a dance that Michael Kidd put together Yeah. Uh, that is about the street life. The, the street scene in New York. Right, which, yeah. which leads into The Fugue for Tin Horns. What we're going to hear, though, is the 1992 revival of it. Here it is. The horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's the guy that says it's all weather's clear. Can do, can do. This guy says the horse can do. If he says the horse can do, can do, can do. I'm making Valentine, cause on the morning line, the guy has got him figured in five to nine. But look at Epitaph, he waited by a half, according to this here is a telegraph. Before we're here, I'll fight, I hear it looks all right. Of course, it all depends if it rained last night. I know it's Valentine, the morning parts look fine, besides the jockey's brother's a friend of mine. And just a minute, boys, I got the Felix noise, it's like his great grandfather right now. I tell you, Paul. Now this is so unfair, it's from a handicap, but that's real sincere. I hope a Valentine's in the morning line, the guy has got him figured in five to nine. So it's epitaph, you can't buy a half of ten roses here in the great way to start a show. Of course, they never told who won the race, whether it was Epitaph, Paul Revere, or the other one. What horse No, the they race? never tell you. No. Of course not. Also, it's the only time they ever talk about horse racing. Yeah. For the rest of it, it's all about having a crap game. Exactly. The oldest established permanent floating crap game in New York. Run by Nathan Detroit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's get your headset on, if you would, and the volume knob below the table on your left, and let's work in a quick call or two. 591-7200 is the number, and... You are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you, Dr. Rosenberg. Great program, as always. Got a question for Sheldon. With the influence of Rajan Hammerstein almost virtually creating the narrative form of the musical, you know, introducing things like the uh, themes of death and things like you've already talked about, if that collaboration hadn't taken place, let's say Larry Hart went off the uh, stop drinking and they got together, do you think the narrative form would have developed as we know it today? I think that as long as Oscar Hammerstein was writing, it would have. I think he is probably the single most important figure in the first half of the 20th century in the development of the American musical. It was something that he always believed was what had to happen. And if it hadn't happened with Rogers, he would have found somebody else to do it with. But Rogers was the perfect choice. Well, yeah, and I, I understand that. His career was sort of in a decline, though, there in the 40s. He wasn't doing very much or very much that was very... Oh, he had something like eight flops in a row. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, after Oklahoma opened, he published an ad in Variety 
that was a, a list of all of the shows that had happened up until then, including how few number of performances they had. And then underneath that he wrote, I did it before and I can do it again. Mm. But he never did. Well, and actually their third show was a flop. Allegro. Allegro. That, would you consider that the first concept musical, really? It was the first concept musical. Not only that, but the man who made the concept musical, Stephen Sondheim, was a production assistant on Allegro. And, and thus saw it firsthand and developed a whole new genre in the 70s with yeah. Hal Prince. That's right. Very good. One other quick question, if I may, Dr. Rosenberg, for the... Yes, sir. Um, if, uh, what do you consider Hammerstein's greatest contribution to the musical? I know there are many, but what do you... You think this is his greatest contribution to the development of the American musical? Me? Yes. Integrating these, integrating the entire show around the book, so that all of the music, all of the dancing, all of the comedy had to come out of the needs of the book. That was his most important. That plus, the language he used was not simple-minded, but was the language of real American people. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank you very much. N fine contribution. And we go back. This is the only one that we're having two uh, numbers from. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. We did that for Showboat. Uh, or rather for... Um, yeah. For, um, yeah, for Showboat. Now, the other one uh, is the one we've just been playing. That is to say, Guys and Dolls. A second number from Guys and Dolls. One of the funniest of all oh, yeah. songs ever done in America. And this, again, is from the 1992 revival. Yeah. It's sung by Faith Prince. But, but explain it. Adelaide's okay, Adelaide, Adelaide is a stripper, actually, yeah. in the Hot Box Club. And she has been engaged for 12 years to Nathan Detroit. And she has developed a cold. And she has been going to a doctor about it. And she's been reading a book on psychology about it. And this is her reading the book on psychology about why she has a cold. Look, Adelaide, you're getting yourself upset. You and I are going to be all right. I After all, we love each other, and we're going to get married. I don't believe you anymore. But it's true. Oh, you'll feel better tomorrow. Come on, cheer up, honey. Let's see that old smile. <laughs> That's my girl. See you tomorrow. It says here. The average unmarried female, basically insecure, due to some long frustration, may react with psychosomatic symptoms difficult to endure, affecting the upper respiratory tract. In other words, just from waiting around for that plain little band of gold, a person can develop a cold. You can spray her wherever you figure the streptococci lurks. You can give her a shot for whatever she's got, but it just won't work. If she's tired of getting the fish eye from a hotel clerk, a person can develop a cold. It says here, the female remaining single, just in the legal sense, shows an erotic tendency, see note. Tendency, see note. Oh, see note. Oh, oh, here we go. Chronic organic syndrome. 
toxic or hypertense. Involving the eye, the ear, the nose, and throat. In other words, just from worrying whether the wedding is on or off, a person can develop a cough. You can feed her all day with the vitamin A and the bromophin. But the medicine never gets anywhere near where the trouble is. If she's getting a kind of a name for herself and the name ain't his. A person can develop a cough. And furthermore, just from stalling and stalling and stalling the wedding trip. A person can develop lock grip. She can hear church bells chime. The compartment is air conditioned, and the mood sublime. Then they get off at Saratoga for the fourteenth time. A person can develop lock grip, lug grip, lapost nasal drip with the wheezes and the sneezes. It's 14 years, not 12 years. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Uh, Lesser and Loeb. Which one are, are the authors, right? Lesser wrote the music. Yeah. And the words. But it's just Lesser. There's, yeah. no, there's no Loeb. No. Where did I get Loeb? I don't know. Loeb. The, the Learner and Loeb. Learner and Loeb. Yeah. Learner wrote the words. Loeb wrote the music. Yeah. That's My Fair Lady and Paint Your Wag. This is Lesser, not Learner. Right. Yeah. Uh, what else did he do? Back lesser. Uh, how to succeed in business without really trying. Uh -huh. Where's Charlie? That was his first musical. He did a lot of Hollywood songs before he mm -hmm. went to Broadway. And a, a flop show called Green Willow. And there's one more. Oh, The Most Happy Fellow. Uh-huh. And he always wrote words and music. He was a, gr he was a great oh, artist, yeah. I would say. Oh, yeah. Is he still around? No, his widow is, and she has complete control over his shows. He had three or four wives. Well, this one he met during the run of, which show was she? Oh, she was in The Most Happy Fellow. She played the female lead, uh -huh. and he left his wife for her. An earlier wife was Nancy Olson. Oh, yeah? Who had a brief career. No, that was Lerner. Well, that was Lerner. That was Lerner. Lerner had eight wives. See how I'm getting these things confused. Yeah. Lerner had eight wives. I think uh, Lesser only had two. I see. Good for him. <laughs> and we have only two commercial breaks tonight. That is in the second hour. And here's that second one. Time grows short. And we've got something coming up now, which I've always loved. This is Leonard Bernstein, I believe. Yep. Uh, from West Side Story. Right. With lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. With lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. And this is not the main love story. This is Cheetah Rivera. Explain a bit. This is the sharks, mm -hmm. the women of the sharks. Although in the movie version, it's the men and the women. On Broadway, it was just the women of the sharks uh, talking about whether or not they missed Puerto Rico up on the roof. Right. And this is Cheetah Rivera. 
each room. Automobile in America, chromium steel in America, wire concrete in America, very big deal in America. A <laughs> couple of things about West Side yeah. Story that are very important to, the, to what happened in the musical. First of all, it told an enormous amount of its story through dance. Jerome Robbins. Mm -hmm. And brilliant dance and character dance. And everyone, this, is, this was very unusual. Everyone except the three or four adults who neither sing nor dance in the show had to be able to sing, dance, and act. There was no dance chorus and singing chorus. Mm -hmm. And first of all, it was cheaper than having two different choruses. And second of all, it was what has now become necessary for any musical theater performer wanting to get going in the business. They have to be what's called a triple threat. They have to be able to sing, mm -hmm. dance, and act. And West Side Story started that. Bernstein, of course, had great aspirations to do um, what symphonic music serious music oh yeah he wrote he a wrote, lot of it wrote a vast amount of it but and one operetta candide yes which is 
Wonderful. Yeah. He called it an operetta rather than an opera. He did. He did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I... But among musicals, he did three or four, didn't he? This he one? Did On the Town. On the Town. Wonderful Town. Mm -hmm. West Side Story. Yeah. And one failed one with Alan J. Lerner called 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Really? Yeah. Don't know about that one. Big flop. I think it ran something like six A presidential musical. Mm -hmm. It actually was about back, back stairs. It was about the I black see. servants. Uh, I w went to a... Well, this is a long story about Bernstein. I'll tell it some other time. Well, we have a last number um, from um, the film Cabaret. Yeah, Cabaret is the beginning of the new musical. It's half a traditional musical with people bursting into song in the middle of scenes, and it's half a concept musical because all of the numbers in the cabaret are about what was going on in Germany mm -hmm. during the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. They're not story. They're not, they, are, they are atmosphere. They are concept. They're the beginning of the concept musical. And here we have Joel Gray as the MC at the cabaret. Welcoming everybody to the cabaret. A very seedy, sinuous, kind of scary guy. Oh, very. And he turns into a Nazi by the end yeah. of, the, of the show. <laughs> Superbly performed. Yes, he was brilliant in it. Now, who does the, who does the music and who does the words? This is Candor and Ebb. And, um, wow, who, who wrote the script? It was Joe Masterhoff wrote the script. It comes from... Um, and Harold Prince directed it. Yeah. That's an important It comes thing. from the Berlin stories of Christopher Isherwood, right. if I remember. And a play called I Am a Camera. Exactly. By uh, John Van Druten. Uh, the curtain rises, and here's the... This is the beginning of the show. The Berlin MC. Happy to see you, play the rest of stay. Welcome and bienvenue, welcome in cabaret, au oh cabaret to cabaret. Meine Damen und Herren, mesdames et messieurs, ladies and gentlemen, come on, Sava. Do you feel good? Leave your troubles outside. So, life is disappointing. Forget it. In here, life is beautiful. The girls are beautiful. Even the orchestra is beautiful. And he wasn't, he wasn't just welcoming the people 
in the german cabaret of nineteen thirty, he was welcoming the audience who also were there for in the german cabaret in nineteen thirty. scary, scary. very scary. we both came upon the word creepy. oh yeah. Uh, and as it continues behind us, we must close down. this has been great fun. i love doing it. and we will certainly do it again. okay. because we've got another to, what, what's the most recent of the of, of the shows that we represented tonight? Cabaret. And when when did that run? That was 1966. So and we got, skipped a lot. So we've got the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And the 20s. And uh, the 2000s. Temporary moment. Oh, yeah. To still take care of. Oh, yeah. And I think we're agreed we'll do that when your book, uh, which is forthcoming from Northwestern University Press as a history of the American musical, right. does appear, which should be uh, early summer.